This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, April the 22nd, 2012. And for you, uh, those at home following the program, and uh, uh, you've got your, your, uh, your show program already laid out in front of you, I write it on an Etch-A-Sketch, basically. Things are constantly in flux on the program. So uh, we're going to uh, make the following uh, changes. We were to uh, talk about the Oklahoma Oklahoma bombing anniversary right off the top, and we will talk about that tonight. So if you tuned in to hear my conversation with a a native of Oklahoma City uh, uh, talking about his documentary film from Freemind Films, we uh, called a noble lie. We will we will get to that a little bit later, but we're going to move things around. Uh, and first, we're going to talk about um, well, we're going to talk to a very uh, popular meteorologist in uh, the United States, who's now a conservative talk show host, about uh, his new book, uh, Eco Tyranny, or Tyranny: How the Leftists' Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. Uh, let me just um, remind you that uh, you can follow the goings-on here on the program uh, at the website richardserrett.com, richardserrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T.com. Yes, after 13 years in broadcasting, I'm still spelling my last name <laughs> for people who have trouble finding it, and that's okay. All right, uh, listen, let's just dive right in, shall we? Uh, I was reading a, um, an article in the, uh, the Telegraph the other day. Climate scientists are losing the public debate on global warming. Green campaigners and climate scientists uh, losing the public debate. One of the movement's leading proponents has admitted. Dr. James Hansen, director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, who first made warnings about climate change in the 1980s, said the public skepticism about the threat of man-made climate change has increased despite the growing scientific consensus. Speaking ahead of a public lecture in Edinburgh this week, he admitted that without public support, it will be impossible to make the changes he and his colleagues believe need to occur uh, to protect future generations from the effects of climate change. He blamed skeptics who are opposed to major social and economic changes 
to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for employing tremendous resources to undermine the scientific evidence. Well, I mean, if the scientific evidence can be undermined, what does that say about the scientific evidence? Well, listen, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Uh, my next guest, as I said, is a popular television journalist turned meteorologist. Brian Sussman realized early in his career that since the left-wing media were busy promoting their worldview, he might as well promote his own. The result has been a career dedicated to exposing Marxist agendas behind global warming, climate change, or whatever the elite's term du jour is. His blockbuster book, Climate Gate, was a game-changer for those resisting the skewed data coming from the Al Gore camp. A resident of San Francisco, Sussman operates in a cultural environment that would be too hot for some, but in which he thrives. A decade ago, he took over a talk radio slot at KSOF, KSFOAM, one of the top conservative radio stations in the country. His new book is Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. Brian Sussman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Richard, just a pleasure to be with you. I've heard so much about this program, and now I get to be a guest, so thank you. Ah, well... Thank you for uh, for taking the time in that that last minute little uh, switcheroony that we had to pull. You're a good sport. Thank you for that. Works out perfectly for me. So this is great. Just wonderful to be able to talk about this very important book. You must have been delighted. Uh, now I don't know where. I mean, this this story has been covered not only in the Telegraph but others. But climate scientists losing the public debate on global warming in large part due to people like you. I'm guessing you must have been thrilled to hear that story. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know I, I don't take any money from big oil. I'm not being paid by Dow Chemical. I'm just I'm just a guy who uh, went to school many years ago to become a television meteorologist and uh, found myself not being able to get a job as a TV meteorologist. Instead, I managed a television newsroom, and so I played the role of journalist for many years. Finally got to be a TV meteorologist and a science reporter, and here I am now writing books about the topic which I love, science and the environment. So I'm a dot connector now, and I will tell you, a lot of people would say, you know, the the conspiracy that I I prove to be true in eco-tyranny is bunk, but 450 footnotes, 340 pages, I want to tell you, folks, I've connected the dots, and this entire scam, the environmental movement, is an entire scam to forward a plan, a plot, to change the way in which we all live. Is the climate... It's interesting, how you, you note in, in, the, in the book how uh, they... They started off talking about uh, uh, global warming, and they don't talk about global warming anymore because the data doesn't back up this global this warming trend. Now they now they talk about climate change, which is kind right. of a grab bag. It means whatever is happening out there will 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 sort of massage it and, and talk about it in terms of uh, you know uh, man made uh, activity or man made carbon dioxide emissions. It's causing whatever's going on out there. That's what's to, what's behind it, but. Um, uh, to what extent is climate change about a transfer of wealth, let's say, from, uh, from the West to the, the developing world? Now, this is a great question. I like what you just described. I'm going to use this in the future. Climate change has become a grab bag. And, and let's start there, if you will, because that's just, I've, I've never thought of it uh, using that particular description, and it's perfect. Climate change has become a grab bag. So they want to make you believe hurricanes tornadoes and windstorms and blizzards and all of this is involved with somehow mankind's burning of fossil fuels altering the climate well those elements are just weather and by the way the worst hurricanes of all time 
never occurred when anyone was talking about climate change or global cooling or global warming. I'm talking about what happened just after the, uh, the, the year 1900 in Galveston, Texas, where a hurricane climbed ashore and killed thousands of people. Uh, tornadoes, some of the most massive tornadoes ever occurred in, this, uh, in, the, in North America when no one was talking about uh, global cooling, global warming, or climate change. These are all just facets of weather that are amazing and, quite frankly, mysterious. But the transfer of wealth thing, we need to go back if we really want to get into the details of this, and I do spend ample time in eco-tyranny talking about two leftist thinkers in Germany in the 1880s who were very well known for their creative writing style and also quite well known for their extreme leftist ideas. And these two individuals hated capitalism, hated private property, which, of course, are, 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 are linked to you know, shoulder-to-shoulder, uh, shoulder, private property and capitalism. They couldn't stand either one of those mechanisms, and they believed that capitalism's pollution could actually change the climate. And so they put forward this fanciful rhetoric, scaring people into believing that capitalism's pollution could change the climate and cause for another ice age, which would cause for all the people on the planet to become extinct. Those two people were Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Mm. They wrote this in 1883. It's on page 31 of my book, Eco-Tyranny. And you know what? The left has never left this one. They've always wanted to use climate change, be it global cooling or global warming or just the grab bag that you mentioned, to try scare people in believing that their lifestyle, their activity, capitalism-free enterprise, could actually alter the planet's climate. They've, they're sticking with this one. Um, if they lose this particular argument, all the spokes from their wheel will just fly off, and they'll be left with nothing. Now, what do they want to do with this? Well, besides hammer free markets and, and uh, bludgeon capitalism, uh, they want to redistribute wealth. That's the goal. They want to do it locally. They want to do it on a larger scale. And then, of course, they want to do it globally. And the way they're doing this is through something called sustainable development. Sustainable development was a term concocted by a Canadian uh, Maurice Strong, who worked for the United Nations, and he came up with this master plan to use environmental crises, both real and imagined, as an opportunity to uh, transfer wealth from the rich to the poor. You know, I'm glad I have a meteorologist on uh, to talk about this, because a lot of the, I think, uh, the big part of the problem is when it comes to scientific data and analyzing scientific studies, most of us in the journalism field or in the broadcasting field, we don't know how. It's like, you know, a lot of people in business, they can't read a financial statement. And a lot of people in journalism, and I include myself in this, we don't know how to read a scientific study. And so uh, you get headlines that are sort of, uh, sort of ripped from the study, but they don't necessarily tell the whole story. Right. And, and here you are, a scientist, a meteorologist. First of all, let's start with something very basic. What's the difference between weather and climate? Well, that's a great question. It's a very basic question, but it's a great question because most people are unfamiliar. When you hear the, the weather forecast, you know, the, the forecaster talks about rain versus showers. Okay, what's the difference? They both sound wet to me. Um, but weather would be what's happening right now. Climate would be the weather over a long period of time. 
And so in terms of the climate, we can look at, you know, we have, I live in California, and the section of California where I live is known as a Mediterranean climate. So it's a very distinct climate that's known for certain trends during the four seasons. Uh, if you live in, in, uh, in, in portions of Canada, you would be part of an, of, of, an, of an Arctic climate. And that climate is noted for, you know, having distinct characteristics during the various four seasons. There are tropical climates, etc. Uh, Saharan climates, sub-Saharan climates. So climate is what happens over a long period of time, and those are the things you can count on. But again, on a day-to-day basis, anything can happen, and that is weather. And now they're trying to tell us that somehow weather is, uh, is being impacted by the burning of fossil fuels and other greenhouse gases being introduced into the atmosphere by man, and that's just total folly. The other thing, when we talk about climate change, we, the nature of the climate is to change over time. That will, that will always happen. Um, you can go up to uh, portions of the Arctic Circle in northern Canada, uh, start digging through the tundra, get down about 6 to 10 feet, and depending where you are, you're going you're gonna to bump into the carcasses, not the bones, the actual bodies of camels, hyenas, lions, tigers, a variety of animals that are not akin to that particular climate in this day and age telling us that thousands of years ago there was a, the, the, the climate would not even resemble what it is today because we obviously had jungle, uh, you know, we had trop, animals more familiar with tropical environments living in, these, in the extreme northern latitudes. So climate changes, we know that. Now, what caused for those shifts long ago? You know, there are many, many theories, but I can tell you one theory that does not hold water is the SUV or the combustion engine or anything like that. Mankind was obviously not responsible for any of those changes, and they were massive. Brian Sussman is uh, my guest here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740 Zoomer Radio. We'll take a quick time out. We'll continue to discuss his new book, Echo Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. We'll also open the phone, uh, phone lines for you. If you have questions, comments, get on board. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area area and toll-free from just about anywhere south to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota, 866-744-740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Exposing the Marxist-Leninist agenda behind the uh, environmental movement. Now, now, Brian, uh, I, I'm you know uh, I'm guessing that you are. I mean, the thing is, most people are at heart, especially conservatives, are environmentalists. I mean, you want to conserve sure. the Earth's resources. So, sure. I mean, are there things in the environmental um, movement or the environmental agenda that you think are important that you that you can get behind yeah that's a, that's a great question uh, and it's very important to, to point this out uh, we all want clean air we all want clean water I want my food to be healthful 
Uh, I do, of course, want all those things. I have in my own backyard, I have a beautiful organic uh, vegetable garden. I raise my own chickens. I've always used some sort of uh, solar power, uh, mostly passive. But listen, I'm, I'm for all that. I don't see how anybody cannot be. I'm also for liberty. And one of the, well, the hallmark of the environmental movement is that it's not about those particular issues. Those are just straw men. Those are things they throw out there to try push their agenda because they know deep down inside we all want clean air, we want clean water. Um, we also are afraid of, uh, we, we, are, we, we don't want to change the climate, and none of us would want to ever do that. But what they're doing here is pushing an agenda that's calling for a lifestyle that's more in keeping with, keep with that is more attuned to keeping us under control. Because you have to realize these leftist thinkers, uh, they are materialists. That doesn't mean they're into material goods. It means uh, they're cut from a cloth that believes humans are no different than trees and are no different than banana slugs. We're all made up of material that's just arranged in a different order, atoms and molecules. So you, Richard, are, you know, you have atoms and molecules. They're just arranged in a way that you're human. Uh, the tree, atoms and molecules, arranged in such a way that it's a tree and right on down the line. So they look at the world and say, you know, really, humans are no different than any other species on the planet. And then they go a step farther. And I'm telling you, this is true. You can talk to these people, and if you can ply them with, you know, a glass of wine or if they smoke dope, whatever they do, if you can get them to be honest with you, they will tell you this. They, we're all the same, just made up of different material. Atoms and molecules are arranged differently. But the human species is actually the most dangerous species on the planet because it can kill all the other species. Therefore, it needs to be discriminated against. Therefore, we need to think about the trees because the trees have no one else standing up for them. We need to think about the darter snail and the, the banana slug because no one's standing up for them. That's the mindset they have. So it's an anti-human agenda. In fact, I contend today's Earth Day. Earth Day's never been about the celebration of mankind. Earth Day has always been an assault on mankind and an assault on capitalism and free markets and what you know, our founders in the United States of America called the pursuit of happiness. So this is an agenda that is pushing something else. It's pushing socialism. It's pushing control. It's pushing a redistribution of wealth. That's the goal behind the entire movement. And they will lie to you. They will look you in the face and lie. They will come up with studies that are absolutely bogus and not consistent with the scientific method because they believe, you know, these people without a moral compass, they believe the end justifies the means. And if any of them don't believe what I'm saying or disagree with me, I would love to hear from them because I will debate you to the very end on this. I wrote this book for, as a historical piece. The first, uh, first half of the book is historical look at the the environmental movement, 450 footnotes, everything's well sourced. Second half of the book, how we can dismantle what they're doing to us here in North America. You talk about uh, the Marxist-Leninist agenda or, or, you know, the communist agenda, and I, I see, for example, national socialism as the flip side of the same coin. And you look at the, the, the uh, groups like the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, now, you know, disabuse me of this uh, if I'm incorrect, but if I... Yeah. If I, if I I'm understanding my history correctly. The the um, the lineage of the World Wildlife Fund was 
Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who was an SS officer, and, and, and you know, Prince Philip, uh, who was on record, publicly stated that if he was reincarnated, he'd like to come back as a deadly human virus. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on, these, on these groups like the World Wildlife Fund or the, or, uh, uh, the Sierra Nature Club? Nature Conservancy, right. Sierra Club, is there, a, is, is there a Nazi legacy there? Well, I can tell you the legacy that you'll find in all of these. The common denominator with all of these groups, World Wildlife Fund, Nature Conservancy, Wilderness Society, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, all the major organizations, they all think capitalism is bad. They all believe socialism is good. They think that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are fanciful notions that are impossible. That's what they all believe. And they also all believe something else. They believe there are too damned many people on planet Earth. Mm. Yesterday I was at uh, an Earth Day festival in Santa Cruz, California, doing some Man on the Street interviews. And I, I asked everyone, what is, the, what is the biggest threat to the future of mankind? And everyone, I mean, I, I, I went to the Sierra Club, and the Sierra Club spokesperson said the same thing that the person who was there to tout uh, desalinization said, the person who was uh, a tree-hugging group uh, not, not associated with the Sierra Club said the same thing. I mean, just write it down the line. It's, uh, dozens of people. They all said the same thing. The problem is humans. There are too many of them. Everyone said the same thing. So you ask them, okay, well, what should be the solution? Well, their solutions were varied. Some say there need to be government control. One guy told me that meat eaters, or he said non-vegans, non-vegans should not be allowed to have children, mm. period, because he said it's the meat eaters that are causing all the pollution on the planet. I mean, this went on and on and on with all these people saying people are the problem. Well, I love people. I, I, I love it when people are having fun. I love it when people are happy. But they, they look upon the human population as the insurgent son of nature, as one of Karl Marx's disciples once said. The most troubling thing, Richard, was when I interviewed a young girl, and she confirmed everything that's in Chapter 6 of Eco-Tyranny, which is called Green Gospel. This 12-year-old girl, her mother cornered me and said, you must interview my daughter, must interview my daughter. I said, well, we're not here necessarily to talk to kids. What's special about your daughter? My daughter is just a, she really understands the environment. I said, well, okay, we'll talk to your daughter. I talked to the daughter, and the daughter says she is so concerned about the reality of global warming and her future that she's actually considered taking her own life. This is child abuse. And her mother, Richard, her mother stood there just looking so proudly upon her. That raw video is being sent to me later this evening. I'm going to be releasing it this week. People are going to be shocked, but... You know, as I was listening to her, sadly, it wasn't shocking me because it's everything. it just only confirmed everything I've been writing about. It's terrible, this greenwashing that's going on in the minds of our youth mm. to the point where these people are actually fearful now of their own future because they think their parents, their grandparents, everyone on the planet is ruining, ruining planet Earth. Yeah, imagine, yeah, children going to sleep at night and thinking, you know, the world is coming to an end. They might as well take their own life. Human beings are a cancer. Uh, this is tantamount to child abuse. And it is. It, it really is. When you look, though, you know what's interesting? One of my favorite uh, columnists write, writes here in the, uh, at the Toronto Sun, Laurie Goldstein, uh, managing editor, one of the few uh, in, in print journalism up here in Canada that I think is, is, is really hitting the nail on the head in, in, as far as this issue. He says, if, you, if, if you're concerned about uh, climate change 
then observe no greater proof exists as to you know that this is a hoax observe the behavior of those people that claim to be most concerned about it uh, Al Gore or a lot of the world leaders you know flying around you know places like Copenhagen on private jets driving around in stretch limos I don't know how many houses Al Gore I mean his carbon footprint uh, is, <laughs> is humongous. but look at the way these people are behaving do they do they look like they're concerned well okay that's that's a great point and see this really that observation confirms much of what I write about Nico tyranny as well these people, Maurice Strong, for example, who again uh, ran um, ran the the largest energy company in Canada for many years, and then suddenly went to work for the United Nations and developed their ener- environmental policy. This is a man who said he was quote a socialist in ideology, a capitalist in practice. Well, Al Gore is the same way. He's a socialist in ideology, but he loves capitalism when it can line his pockets. I would say so many other champions of the environment in the United States are the exact same way. So they go about living their lives, and it's, it's no different than the Politburo uh, was in the Soviet Union. You know, everyone was supposed to be equal there, but, you know, if you worked for the government, you were more equal. And if you rose to a great position of power in the government, you were even more equal. So this is the way they like to live. We're, we're, the rest of us are peons. They'll drive around in their limos and have their planes and have their big houses, etc. They'll be insulated from all the problems in the world. And, and by the way, I mean, this, is, this will be okay for them going forward. If you want to have a large carbon footprint and you can afford to uh, pay the fees associated with your large carbon footprint, uh, that'll be fine with them because those fees will be used to pay for all of the various social programs that they're going to be putting in place for the rest of the people. That's called... That's called sustainable development matched with social equity. This is exactly what the United Nations has always intended for the United States of America, certainly, and we're going hell-bent for leather to make sure it's accomplished. One of the, the, the common uh, rejoinders you hear from those people that, that, that are pro, uh, or that, that believe in, in man-made uh, climate change is that the skeptics are funded by big oil, and you alluded to that off the top. But right. when you look at, you have people like Rex Tillerman, uh, who was the, the chief executive for ExxonMobil. Here's a guy who was saying that the, the cap-and-trade, I mean, this, this would be a nightmare that was, you know, was going to pass in, in the Senate. He was saying it doesn't go far enough. So big oil, these people are behind uh, cap-and-trade. These people are behind, they're promoting human-induced global warming. But we, we, don't, we don't hear that in the, no, in, in the mainstream media. And it's just like, you know, one of the, I mean, Enron, uh, and everybody remembers the Enron disaster. Uh, Enron was just one of the biggest lobbyists for cap-and-trade. I know here in California where cap-and-trade begins uh, next year, and we're going full bore with it, uh, our largest utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, has been pushing for it as well because these entities know that there are ways that they can actually profit from this because they'll be so well invested in it that they'll be able to turn a profit. So will, their, will the price of their product be higher? Yes. Will people use less? Yes. But they've found uh, they'll be able to actively trade in the carbon market and be able to make loads of bucks off of the deal. In the meantime, it's going to be the rest of us that end up paying mightily for this cap-and-trade program. So, yeah, there are, you know, it's, in a free market society, there are always ways to make a buck, and, uh, and capitalism will always allow people to... Uh, to profit here, there, or anywhere. 
But this cap-and-trade thing, just this is not the way capitalism was meant to be because it places just a great burden on the consumer. And listen, at the end of the day, the goal they have for us here in California, because our cap-and-trade system is law, our, our, our environmental regulations that make the, uh, the federal EPA, uh, makes the federal EPA look like a bunch of pikers, we're going hell that for leather with it here in California. The way it's going to be, you just won't be able to afford to have a large house anymore. You're going to have to be thinking small. You're not going to be able to afford to drive a big vehicle anymore. You're going to have to think small. Uh, you're not going to be able to live in a, in a suburb. It's going to be too expensive in terms of the regulatory fees. And if you want to build a house, my gosh, you're going to have to spend right now $70,000 just to get a permit to build a house because of all the environmental fees. You're probably going to want to live in a, an urban environment with what they're calling stack-and-pack housing next to a, a rail station so you can zip around uh, the region on mass transit. Brian, listen, i got the music uh, creeping up uh, in behind me. Can I get you to hold on, and uh, we'll take a few calls yes. when we come back? Echo t- Tyranny, how the left's green agenda will dismantle America. Back with more here on AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. Interesting how uh, the former leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, now, I mean, he's almost been, um, I don't know, he's almost like a saint now in some people's, uh, in, in some people's minds, elevated to sainthood. L- listen to this quote from Mikhail Gorbachev. We must speak more clearly about sexuality, contraception, about abortion, about values that control population because the ecological crisis, in short, is the population crisis. Cut the population by 90%, he said, and there aren't enough people left to do a great deal of ecolog- ecological damage. Um, frightening. And, and you hear... You hear people talk about, you know, drastically cutting the population, 90% here, 90%, uh, 50%, whatever. They don't tell you how they're going to do it. Uh, <laughs> who's going to make that decision? Uh, that's, the, uh, that's the question. Uh, Brian Sussman is with us. Uh, the, the book is Echo Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle uh, America. Now, um, Mikhail Gorbachev was, if I, if I remember correctly, even before he left the Soviet Union, he had opened up an office in in uh, in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. Had he not set up uh, set up shop there and was promoting his you know his one world uh, vision of uh, uh, you know governance and so forth? Oh yeah, the green. Yes, he did. It was again in the San Francisco Bay Area. There are uh, a lot of wonderful people who are formerly from the Soviet Union. And many of these people have become my friends. And and uh, when you speak to these people one-on-one and you ask them, for example, about Mikhail Gorbachev, because he also at least resides part-time in San Francisco, thanks to a sweetheart deal that was brokered uh, through Nancy Pelosi for him to actually get one of our former military bases and use it as a place of operation for his environmental organization, they will all look you in the eye to a man and a woman. They will say, Mikhail Gorbachev is a communist. He hasn't changed his stripes, they will all tell you. So Mikhail Gorbachev swings this sweetheart deal, so he actually has his Green Cross headquarters in the former Presidio military base, the International Green Cross. It's interesting because Gorbachev, of course, communist, former leader, Soviet Union, and also noted atheist, 
This is a man who worked very hard in conjunction with the United Nations to bring uh, an environmental program into every church and synagogue in America. Now, it just seems odd to me Mm. that this, I mean, why would he do that? He was never friendly to religion when he was running the Soviet Union, but suddenly comes to the United States, and he wants to get this green program into every church and synagogue in America. Well, he's been very successful to a large degree, but this international green cross that he has, they are committed to eliminating capitalism and liberty uh, from the planet. In fact, when you look at his mission statement, it says to ensure basic changes in the values actions and attitudes of government, the private sector, and civil society necessary to build a sustainable global community. He wants to, he's in the United States laughing as he tries to change the way we live, laughing the way he, laughing trying to change the way uh, we do business here. And you know, it's not just the United States, this is a North American plan. They're as hungry to get a hold of Canada as they are any place else because they see this land and they want to return it back to nature. They want to get the, the, the ranchers and the farmers and those who live in, in the hinterlands. They want to get them out of those places, return that back to nature, introduce the wolf, more bears, more mountain lions, make it uninhabitable for people because there will be so much wildlife. Now, why they want to do this, I'm not sure, but this entire plan has been, well, I am sure. The, the reason why they want to do this is because they don't like human beings. But this plan was best articulated by Barack Obama's science and technology advisor, John Holdren. Uh, This is a guy who's taught at Harvard. He's taught at Stanford. He's a very bright man, academically speaking. He has said we need to de-develop North America. In other words, get get rid of as much urbanization, as much humanization as possible, de-develop it, and return it back to nature. I'm all for nature, folks, but you know what? We need some place to live, and this is crazy talk. All right, let's go to the phones, and we begin with Richard in Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Richard, you're on the line with Brian Sussman. Uh, good evening. Uh, I just got a, co- a couple of comments. Uh, first, uh, uh, we've forgotten about uh, Dr. David Suzuki is also pushing uh, uh, this green plan, and uh, the Premier of Ontario, uh, Dalton McGinty, uh, uh, pushing it, and uh, like I've tried to reduce my carbon print. I put in all these energy-efficient bulbs, uh, just replaced the uh, refrigerator. Well, needed replacing anyways, but and new air conditioning and uh, furnace because they were getting old. And do all these things, and my it reduced my energy rate, but my my costs have still keep going up. Sure. Um, and, and again, you know, they, they love for you to buy all these new contraptions and they love to make all these improvements to your home because they really see that as a jobs plan. You see, they believe that, well, you know, when you have to weatherize your home, you're going to have to have somebody do it for you. When you install the solar panels on the roof, you're going to have to employ somebody to do that. When you get the new refrigerator, that means there's going to be somebody back at a refrigerator plant building the new refrigerator. They see this as a way to create jobs. It's cockamamie to me. I say, let the consumer decide what they want for their house um, and do things accordingly. But you're right. If the goal is to save money in your electricity bill, why aren't those electricity bills stabilizing and, in fact, going downward? Part of that has to do is there's not enough electricity. And rates are going to continue to climb because there is a plan that the Greens have 
to not build more. They're trying to get rid of coal-powered uh, electrical generating facilities as opposed to just employing technology that would allow them to become cleaner. Here in the United States, we have 104 nuclear power plants. Over the next 20 years, we're going to have 40. Um, we're going to have 50 million more people introduced into our population, just to maintain parity with nuclear as a part of our energy portfolio. We need 100 new nuclear power plants in the next 20 years. But who's standing in the way of that? It's the environmentalists. They'll tell you it's because of the nuclear fuel. The nuclear fuel, it's 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 dangerous, etc. By the way, can I just tell you, you can take all the nuclear waste from all of them, all of the United States nuclear plants and take all that waste that's been generated since the 1960s and put it in your average high school-sized gymnasium. If we were allowed to recycle our nuclear fuel like every other country does, I'm not sure what the plan for that is in Canada, but I know in the United States we don't do it. Not only would it provide for thousands of jobs, but we could take that nuclear waste and have it greatly reduced. But the left in this country loves to use nuclear waste as, again, a straw man that they can throw out there to scare people, when in fact it's not scary at all. It's a 100% green, emission-free source of energy. All right. Let's say hello to, uh, we'll have some, a detractor here. Carol is in Vermont. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, uh, Carol. You're on the line with Brian Sussman. Hi. I grew up here in the 1950s, and I went to bed every night terrified to go to sleep because of the atom bomb. And that wasn't invented by our beautiful cows or trees or banana slugs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I'm not sure what the point is there. I'm going with that, but uh, I'm glad you're sleeping better now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, Canada is just—it's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. There's no question about that. One of the plans is uh, for for North America is something that was concocted by Dave Foreman, and I write about this in Eco Tyranny. Uh, Dave Foreman is the founder of Earth First. Earth First is an eco-terror organization. I mean, plain and simple. Uh, they were the folks that were putting spikes in trees for the lumbermen to a hit, and then the you know the the blade of the saw goes back into their torso and cuts them in half. These are the people who were on a campaign to burn every Hummer in America, and they did a nice job at some of the dealerships in in the United States. So that's Dave Foreman. He started Earth First. He's also been a board member of the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society. He's like a rock star in the, in the Green Movement. This is a guy who for years has been trying to get these wild ways established in North America where he'd buy, you'd have broad swaths returned back to nature, get rid of the farmers, ranchers, people living in the outposts, etc. He's making great headway here in the United States, but in Canada he's done a great job. Um, you know, the Canadian Boreal Initiative... That's agreement. That was an agreement broker between activists such as the Wilderness Society and Greenpeace and the Nature Conservancy. I mean, that's taking a big swath of Canada and putting it off limits to development forever. Um, we're going to be doing that same thing throughout the United States, and this is a plan they have. They want to take all the people, herd them into what they call urban hubs, have us live like little hamsters, one on top of the other. And at the end of the day, people are going to say, well, gee, I mean, I guess... You know, why should I have two kids when I could have one, or why should I have one kid when I could have none because of the carbon footprint necessary to allow one of those people to live? It's a bizarre Orwellian world that they have planned for us, but, Richard, it's the truth. Brian, what are your, feeling, what are your thoughts on, on offshore drilling, uh, given what happened in the, uh, in the Gulf? Well, what happened in the Gulf was very real, and, and we're not going to try short-sheet that in any way, shape, or form. I just find it amazing that my president took what happened in the Gulf 
and you know there are many many countries who are drilling for oil in the gulf the united states uh the, the, the companies associated with the united states are just a few but um what happened in the gulf was very real so our president decided to take that disaster and shut off oil drilling offshore from the entire east coast of the united states through 2017 i don't know what drilling on the east coast has to do with the gulf but that's what he did he also took drilling in the gulf of alaska and put that off limits indefinitely then he came before the microphones and said well the gulf of mexico is open for business well it's open for business but the regulatory hurdles that you have to climb in order to do business in the gulf as a u.s. entity is just absolutely breathtaking and that's why we're seeing three hundred and sixty barrels of oil a day less in production than we were before this man took office in the meantime we had that situation so again i i i really love you can't drill up and down the west coast of the united states san santa barbara because of all of the regulations it's a big waste of a resource and some of this is shallow water drilling very close to shore they won't allow it to take place. This would be revenue for the states. It would allow us to see our gas prices lowered immensely. It would help us get out from under the shadows of, of OPEC. And I will tell you, you know, if we ever decided to tap our oil in the United States the way you guys do in Canada, the Saudis would soil their tunics because that would really cut into their market share. Randy is in Harbor Creek, Pennsylvania. Randy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Go ahead. Yeah, how you doing? Well... I, I kind of laugh. Uh, I, I'm almost 60 years old, and I've learned that the left is full of it, the right is full of it. And I kind of laugh that a right-winger is uh, talking about fascism. A right-winger should know all about fascism. Well, sir, obviously you don't know anything about fascism. About oil. Sir, just a second, Randy. Hang on. Let, hang on, Randy. Randy, Randy. Let, let, let Brian, uh, let, let Brian uh, comment. If you want to, you know, if you're going to cast aspersions, let him defend himself. Sir, Go if you're going to if you're going to throw out terms like fascism, do you even know what that means? Tell me the economic definition of fascism, sir. Randy, you're talking fascism not only in in the area of environmentally, but you're talking fascism somehow tied into environmentalists, and believe me, I don't like the left any more than I like the right. The truth, like I said, is in the middle. Fascism is... Look at it. You tell me what you think fascism is. Okay, well, I, I will I give you, I'll give you the definition of fascism, sir. Uh, the definition of fascism from an economic standpoint is private ownership, central control. That's it. In terms of economics, it's private ownership, central control. Now, in the United States, we're seeing this hell-bent for leather. I've used that term way too many times, and I apologize, Randy. Uh, I could use other terminology, but it probably wouldn't be suited for general radio. The, the point is, here in the United States, we're allowing for private ownership, but there's tremendous central control. In other words, the central government is telling you how to run your business. Uh, Hitler was great with that same concept. He would allow profit from private companies, but only so much profit. Uh, now, to me, that's not a free market. That's not capitalism. That's limiting capitalism, and that's the government getting in the way of capitalism. So, sir, from an economic standpoint, that's fascism. Yeah, I think what 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 uh, many people are confusing and what's going on today. I mean, we do see a great deal of you know corporate corruption, and people think that this is the fault of the free enterprise system. We don't have free enterprise. We have corporate favoritism. Right, and the other thing is, you know, in in terms of in terms of uh, a free market and capitalism, none of us like greed, but greed has to be allowed 
unless it violates the law, because otherwise we're going to be the arbiters of greed. It's going to be you and I, Richard, and other people saying, well, no, that's greed. Well, no, that's greed. It's going to be a very relative thing. So there are always, always going to be greedy people, and greed is going to, you know, have, have, you know, it's going to have a variety of different uh, flavors and a variety of different extremes. But unless someone's breaking the law, I just don't see how we can regulate that. In the meantime, you know, if someone wants to go out there and make a massive profit on a product, well, I think the marketplace will determine how long they'll be able to do that, if they'll be able to do it at all. You look at Apple and Microsoft, my gosh, these people, if, if these companies, if they're making anything less than a 20% profit, their, share, their shareholders riot. In the meantime, the oil companies, uh, Exxon, for example, is probably the best-case example, they had record profits in uh, 2007 of $40 billion. Well, their profit margin was only 10%. Compare that, as I do in the book Eco-Tyranny with Saudi Arabia. That same year, they had pro- net profits of $200 billion, and their profit margin is just incredible. When the Saudis pull an oil, a barrel of oil out of the ground, they're only paying $2 to harvest that oil. Um, so, again, you know, greed is relative. Profit should be profit. Let the free market and the people decide how much they're willing to pay for a product, and the price of that product will come down accordingly. I know one sort of environmental issue that you are very concerned about, and that is uh, the coming water shortage. Oh, gosh. I write about this in eco-tyranny because, again, it's not just oil and it's not just energy and electricity and, uh, and the way we heat our homes, and it's not just available land, which I think is extremely important. Especially here in the United States, you know, the federal government was never supposed to be in the land-owning business, according to the founders of this country, and now the federal government owns 700 million acres, and Barack Obama has a plan to take over 140 million more. I found that plan, and I introduced it into the appendix of the book, and it's just a jaw-dropper. I actually scanned the PDF documents that I was able to obtain. But this water shortage issue is, is incredible. I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but here in the United States, 36 of our 50 states are facing critical water shortages. And in the next 40 years, when we have another 100 million people added to the population, we're going to need more water. And yet, once again, it's the same group standing in the way of more energy that's standing in the way of more water, the environmental groups, because they equate energy and water with development. And, of course, they equate development with capitalism, and they just don't want that because capitalism will improve lifestyles, uh, get people more hungry for freedom and liberty, and also, of course, according to them, just create more people. So this is a very, very serious issue. I'm not sure. I, I propose some solutions on how to deal with it. But, again, all of my solutions fly in the face of those on the left who just don't want to see any more dams. They don't want to see any more reservoirs. They don't want to see desal plants along our 6,000 miles of coast. The United Nations is, is uh, promoting this sort of this green uh, religion, uh, Gaia worship, if you, if you will. I, I have uh, two children that go to a private orth- a Greek Orthodox school, a primarily religious school. And, but I see, I see evidence of this guy worship even there. I mean, they're being inculcated with this whole idea of, uh, you know, climate change and, 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 and so forth. Uh, what evidence are you seeing? I mean, are you seeing this Gaia worship infiltrating the, uh, uh, the churches in the United States as well? I, the mainstream denominations, if they're not calling it Gaia by name, 
they're instituting something called biocentrism, which proclaims the the Earth is is a giant one is, is a giant living organism, and each of us uh, plays a role in that organism and can impact the entire organism by the way of our lifestyle. Uh, when introduced into uh, the world of science, biocentrism was you know laughed out about uh, 20 years ago because most scientists, you know, let's, let's put God over here and let's just talk about science. But now more and more sciences are, scientists are embracing this, this belief because I think it fits their leftist ideology. And, and might I just say, in, ter- in terms of the global warming debate, which is at, so much at the heart of this, in eco-tyranny I talk about the 31,000 PhDs who have signed an agreement saying we don't believe in anthropogenic global warming. 9,000 of those are uh, PhDs who are involved in atmospheric sciences. Uh, just a week ago, we had uh, a bunch of employees from NASA with PhDs who wrote a letter to the director of NASA saying, listen, stop the human-induced climate change talk. The theory is broken. It doesn't work. It was a list of all these NASA scientists. They're not working for big oil. They're just NASA scientists. Uh, seven of them were astronauts. One had walked on the moon. So when you hear all these voices, you realize that our kids in these schools are being fed this green gospel that uh, is not based on scientific fact. It bothers me because the kids are being taught what to think, not how to think. And that's why I wrote this book, Eco-Tyranny, because I want people to look at the facts. Listen, my opinion is based on facts. My facts are supported by 450 footnotes in this book. I want people to read the book, and they can make up their mind for themselves. If you want to just exclude my opinions, just read the facts. They're all there, and you will begin to see for yourself that, indeed, the environmental movement is based on a leftist agenda that has nothing to do with the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the wonderful wildlife that surrounds us. It is a political agenda. They're hooking you with air, water, and trees. It's about something far greater and certainly more devious than that. How would you, how would you characterize the state of uh, uh, our planet today in terms of uh, uh, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and so forth? Excellent question. And you've had some excellent questions during the course of this broadcast, and I commend you for that, Richard. I thank you so much. I've been on many, many radio shows over the past week, and you're doing a splendid job thank you. of asking the right questions. Um, when it comes to the United States of America, and I'm sure the same thing is in Canada, so let's just say North America, because in so many ways we are great, great friends and, and, uh, and cohorts, uh, we've done an excellent job of cleaning up our air. Uh, if you look at the six major pollutants in the uh, United States Clean Air Act, uh, we've cleaned those up. And so as a result, because we've done such a wonderful job of cleaning up our air, they had to develop a new pollutant called carbon dioxide, 38 one-thousandths of 1% one of the Earth's atmosphere, and it's a pollutant. Necessary for life, and it's a pollutant. A variable gas, and they call it a pollutant. You can't touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, and they call it a pollutant. So that's the new pollutant. Now, okay. So if these environmental activists are so hot to trot about what's happening, for example, in North America, and are ready to protest every coal plant that's been around for decades, I'm just asking them, why don't they all get on a plane and go to China? China is building a new dirty coal plant every week. They don't care about pollution over there. They'll blow it out, crud up the skies, cause for breathing problems. They don't care. That's what they're doing in China. I just find it amazing. These environmental activists are so 
angry here in the United States and in Canada, go to China, go to Brazil, go to Russia, go to India. That's where they're polluting like nobody's business. So I'm not for pollution. They need to go to these other countries and talk to them instead of lecturing us here in North America, where we have done a brilliant job of cleaning up our skies. And we are doing a great job of cleaning up our water supply, although, quite frankly, I really do believe we've got a long way to go on that. And part of the solution to that is more water. All right, Brian, listen, congratulations on the book, Echo Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. Thank you for joining me. Richard, it's just been an absolute pleasure. By the way, a lot of my spicy um, environmental blogs uh, can be found at debatemealgore.com, and the book can be purchased at amazon.com. Now, there's a debate I would love to see. <laughs> All right, Brian, thanks for time. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Good All night. Right. Good night, Brian Sussman. When we come back, we'll speak to a, uh, the co-writer of a new documentary on the Oklahoma City bombing. The anniversary just passed a couple days ago, and uh, that was 17 years ago this month. What really happened? Well, my next guest has a very different theory than the official version. Hope you'll stay around for that. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. 17 years ago this month, the bombing of the federal building, the Alfred Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, 168 dead, 19 of them uh, children. And now a new documentary uh, entitled A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. Um, which has been produced by Free Mind Films. Really uh, an unnerving reality check into the, the world of what the filmmakers say is the true story of what actually happened when the Alfred P. Murrah uh, victim, uh, rather, when the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building was allegedly destroyed by a truck bomb on April 19, 1995. The, fil- the film features interviews with first-hand witnesses, survivors, first responders, police officers, and victims' family members. Brigadier General Benton Pardon, former head of the uh, Air Force, U.S. Air Force Weapons Development, uh, analyzed the bomb damage uh, at the Alfred P. Murrah building, and his report sharply refutes the official hypothesis. Joining me uh, from Oklahoma City is the co-writer of A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, Holland Van Duen, uh, let me help, uh, let me see if I can get some, uh, get this uh, name right here, uh, Van de Nuenhoff, Holland Van de Nuenhoff. Did I get that right, Holland? That's it. Thank you very much for having us on. I'm also joined, uh, I hate to spring this on you, I'm also joined by our narrator, Chris Emery, also our co-producer. Hey, Chris, welcome, both of you. Thank you for inviting us, Richard. A Noble Lie. 
Now, uh, I believe Plato uh, used this quote. Plato talked about a, a noble eye in terms of sort of the the elites sort of spinning this tale, uh, pulling one over on the public, but done so in order to preserve social harmony. What did you mean by a noble lie? Well, the title is picked out by our Dr. James Lane. A noble lie from Plato's Republic refers to a myth or, or, or untruth told by the elite to preserve social harmony or the position of the elite. And it often refers to a national myth perpetuated to serve a, a greater good. And we believe that the Oklahoma City, the official story, we know is false. And that uh, from top to bottom, and in fact, it's one of, the mo- one of the most demonstrable cases of an official story being utterly false. But done to preserve social harmony? I mean, what is it about the truth that would destroy social harmony? They needed to create a national myth about the uh, deadly danger of domestic terrorist attacks. Um, And to do so, they actually made it happen. Without government intervention, the Oklahoma City bombing never would have occurred. Now, uh, the official version, of course, was Timothy McVeigh parks a rider truck uh, loaded with with fertilizer. Uh, And, you know, his comment was that this was payback. This was dirty for dirty. It was a two-year anniversary of the uh, the horrible ending to the Waco uh, uh, crisis. Um, what is what are your findings in terms of the actual uh, detona- detonation devices that were used to bring down the Alfred P. Murrah building? Well, the official story is that uh, a truck bomb, and in fact, inside a rider truck packed with Varying amounts of explosives. At first it was 1,200 pounds, then 4,800. Now it's up to seven. And I've even heard 9,000 pounds of explosives, but that exceeds the uh, weight capacity of a rider truck. So it doesn't matter. It's all false anyway. The damage to the Murrah building was uh, problematic if it was a truck bomb because uh, the, the blast wave from ammonium nitrate explosive does not shatter concrete and cut rebar. It's in fact a low explosive that everyone knows that who works with this stuff. It lacked the signature of an ammonium nitrate explosion. It lacked the ammonium gas cloud that is always present when you detonate large amounts of ANFO, which is what uh, ammonium nitrate and fertilizer and diesel fuel is called, ANFO. It lacked the signature of that, like when an ANFO bomb was exploded uh, at the Army Math Lab at the University of Wisconsin in 1970, there was a deadly gas cloud that uh, put 23 people in the hospital. There are no reports of noxious fumes to the extent that it impeded breathing on April 19th, 1995. If that had been several thousand pounds of ANFO, downtown Oklahoma City would have been enveloped in a deadly gas cloud that would have been a tragedy um it would have added to the tragedy that did not exist the bite on the northeast side of the building is offset from the crater in the street it doesn't match up and this bite is very problematic because two columns disappeared dissolved but columns closer to the truck bomb are totally intact with the sheetrock still hanging on them so the truck bomb could not have done that damage to the building and we we proved this by interviewing uh, general benton k parton former head of uh, Air Force Armaments Laboratory, he did a bomb damage analysis, concluded that up to four explosives were strapped to interior columns. We also examined the findings of the Wright Armament Laboratory out of Elgin Air Force Base. The Air Force conducted a simulation of the bombing uh, with explosives and a test structure, and they concluded that there were explosives inside the building. Three seismographs in Oklahoma recorded two different explosions. In fact, it's the official position of the Oklahoma Geological Survey that two energetic events 
occurred at uh, 9.02 a.m. on April 19th. It's interesting when you, uh, you, you always go back to the initial uh, news reports, the local news reports, and then somehow those uh, tend to be erased or uh, uh, sort of lost to the collective memory. The early reports were saying, what, there were two, perhaps three, uh, three bombs located inside the buildings, correct? Yes, the initial news news reports on the day of the bombing, and then not just news reports, these were uh, government press releases and official statements from the governor of Oklahoma, from the military, from the Air Force, uh, Highway Patrol, and the Fire Department. Uh, they were all reporting that ex- that other unexploded bombs had been fa- found inside the building. Uh, this was reported, in fact, uh, the day after the Air Force was still reporting that these bombs did exist. After that, uh, they were scrubbed from the official story. But uh, we have talked to rescuers on the scene. They talk about the bomb squad removing bombs with timers attached that were set to go 10 minutes after the initial explosion. This is a common terrorist tactic uh, to target first responders. You set off a bomb, first responders arrive, second bomb goes off, causes more casualties. Um, Thankfully, the second bombs, these extra bombs, did not detonate and make the tragedy even worse. Did you talk to any of the uh, the, re- the 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 local news reporters uh, that w- that were reporting about these these other bombs inside the building? Uh, Richard, this is Chris. I did Hi, Chris. as a, uh, I did as a matter of fact talk to Devin Skillian. He was one of the uh, let's see your PM anchors for Channel Four. He was woke up by the explosions, and I had a conversation with him back in two thousand seven. I flew up to Detroit and had dinner with him. He's now a uh, news anchor with Channel Four up in Detroit. And uh, he told me that he remembers the stories coming in uh, right off, hot off the press of uh, multiple devices in the building. And then about four or five hours after the bombing, the FBI and the powers that be from Washington, D.C. that flew in started changing the storyline. He said it was a very kind of a surreal metamorphosis of what actually happened to something that turned out to be somewhat ridiculous. He couldn't say that on the air, but in retrospect, he saw the complete 180-degree uh, turn of, of the news, uh, the storyline, and he said it was very, very upsetting. I remember uh, at the time, and I, I, you guys can uh, disabuse me if, if these are apocryphal stories, but I heard reports of uh, a, a television stations being bought up uh, after, the, um, after the Oklahoma City bombing. Those, some of those uh, reporters were fired. Uh, those reporters that uh, had, uh, had talked about or had reported on these other bombs inside the building. Do you, do, you, do you remember those reports? Were they apocryphal or were they true? Actually, it was true. Uh, about a year and uh, two months after the bombing, uh, the New York Times came in and bought out the NBC affiliate Channel 4, and it was Melissa Cleansing, the news director, who was very, very objective, and I still to this day consider her to be very professional in uh, her efforts to get the truth out, to be uh, as, as truthful as possible. And uh, her contract simply was not renewed. It came up every two years. They didn't renew it. Jana Davis, one of the best uh, qualified reporters out there, and she really uh, started kicking open doors and, and making phone calls and talking to people that uh, would have never been contacted if it wasn't for her and her crew. Her contract was not renewed, so they were gone. They just pretty much just worked out their their obligations and were not renewed, were not asked to come back. Channel 4 had been the only station in Oklahoma City that continued to report on many of these anomalous pieces of evidence. For example, the fact that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the supposed target of the attack, who had also been responsible for the initial uh, attack in Waco, 
uh, their office was empty on the morning of the bombing. This is proven. We proved this in the movie Anobelai. And uh, they were reporting on John Doe number two. They were tracking down John number two, in fact, named him by name and tracked down the eyewitnesses, put up lineups, and he was named. Um, and uh, they were actually, they were the only station that was pursuing this for up to a year after the bombing. Then once the New York Times bought him out, all of that reporting vanished. Interesting similarities between uh, 9-11 and the Oklahoma City bombing. This was Clinton's 9-11. Uh, obviously, I mean, up until 9-11, this was the largest domestic so-called terrorist uh, acts uh, ever committed. Um, but in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, Clinton passed his version of the Patriot Act, right? Yes, the omnibus crime bill had stalled in Congress totally, had no traction. It was a violation of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and individual rights. And it was going nowhere. After the Oklahoma City bombing, it was repackaged. uh, It was the same bill, but it was just retitled the uh, Anti-Terrorist Effective Death Penalty Act, and it flew right through Congress. So you see kind of a template for 9-11 that was tried out six years prior, and I'm sure they learned a lot of lessons from Oklahoma City. I know they use a lot, I knew I know they use the same methodology, especially in the mode of cover-up that they used in 9-11. Holland Van Duen, uh, sorry, uh, excuse me, Holland, that's a, uh, the last name is uh, a bit of a, a <laughs> mouthful for me. <laughs> Holland Van de Nieuwenhoff yes. and uh, Chris Emery uh, join me, and uh, the uh, documentary is A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. Let's take a time out. We'll come back. We'll uh, invite callers to the phone lines as well. Locally, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Toll free from out of town. Toronto to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 1-866-744-740. As we commemorate the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing back in April of 1995. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Two different explosive devices were found in addition to the one that went off. And of course, then there was mass confusion whenever uh, there were hundreds of spectators in the area. And when they heard that there were other bombs in the building, people were running from the area in the opposite direction as fast as they could. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Holland van de Nieuwenhoff is uh, the co-writer of A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, a new documentary, Explosive uh, Evidence, uh, no pun intended. Uh, and uh, also joining us on the line is the narrator of the film, Chris, Chris Emery. Uh, and this comes from Free Mind Films. Timothy McVeigh, uh, according to you, who you talked to, he was uh, either a patsy of white extremists, the patsy of Islamic fundamentalists, the patsy of a vast government conspiracy, a psychotic, remorseless mass murderer. Uh, uh, either Chris or, or Holland, jump in here. Who was Timothy McVeigh? Uh, Tim McVeigh was a U.S. Army soldier. He uh, had served in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War in 1991, uh, with distinction, earned a medal. 
And after he uh, got back, actually, while he was still in the Gulf, he was pulled out to undergo special forces training. Uh, according to the official story, he pronounced himself unable to continue just a couple days in, and he returned to his unit and shortly thereafter left the Army. But he told his uh, family in letters and in person that he had been recruited out of special forces to participate in covert operations. He told his first set of attorneys after he'd been arrested in Oklahoma. Um, he was actually given some of the finest attorneys in Oklahoma, and they sat down with him in his, in his first meeting with him. He said that uh, he had been recruited out of the Army to infiltrate neo-Nazi activities and that what he did in Oklahoma City, he carried out under orders. His attorneys believed him, and they backed out. They would have nothing to do with it. In fact, one of them said, after you, uh, after you were done with this case, you'll never look at the, at the government the same way again. Um, he told uh, Terry Nichols, the only convicted accomplice, that he was working undercover missions for the FBI. He named his handler by name, Larry Potts, assistant director of the FBI, who had been charged of the uh, fiasco at Ruby Ridge, who'd played a role in Waco, and who was also active in an ongoing undercover operation that the FBI was running at the time called PACCON, which stood for Patriot Conspiracy. PACCON was an operation uh, launched in the early 90s to infiltrate every uh, neo-Nazi and so-called right-wing group in the United States and implicate them in firearms and explosives felonies. Nothing much came of PACCON, but we have a lot of reason to believe that Oklahoma City, the bombing, was spawned out of PACCON. And in fact, when he was uh, executed on June 6th of 2001, very interesting, his death certificate lists his employer, not his veteran status, it lists his employer as U.S. Army. Now, Tim McVeigh had had several different jobs. It had been nine years since he left the military. There's no reason to list his occupation as uh, U.S. Army. And actually, it lists his employer as U.S. Army and his occupation as soldier. And in fact, he received a medal while he was in prison. So despite what they all say, uh, we believe that Tim McVeigh was working for the government at the time of the bombing. Was this a some sort of a sting operation that went bad? Well, I believe that was the method of execution. Now, a lot of people, there's a lot of different theories, all with a credible body of evidence about what really happened at Oklahoma City. One of the theories, a little more mainstream theory, is that the Oklahoma City bombing was a result of a sting operation that went awry, that they were supposed to stop it at the last minute, proclaim themselves heroes, but something went wrong, they weren't able to stop it, and the cover-up is as a result of that. And there's nothing to disprove that. But there was a lot of evidence, including the bombs inside the building that indicates, and the cover-up afterwards, that indicates that the operation was hijacked. It was executed as a sting operation, and that's how they move all the assets in place. Whenever you look at these deep state operations, there are always concurrent military, police, or intelligence operations or simulations taking place at the same time, always. And this is so they can move the assets in place to execute the crime. Once they did that and they actually made it go live and blow up the building, all the players involved, they are in cover-up mode because it was their truck, their bomb, their informants. They don't know exactly what happened. All they, do, all they do know is that their truck blew up, the building blew up, and they have 168 dead people, and now they're covering their butts. When you say originally it may have been a situation where they wanted to make uh, somebody look like a hero, are you specifically talking about ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms? Because they were taking a lot of heat for the way they handled the situation in Waco. 
ATF was facing, uh, you know, dismemberment. There was a uh, real talk that was gaining traction in Congress about dissolving the ATF. They had been involved in a series of scandals, not just Waco and Ruby Ridge, but the good old boy roundup uh, where they were agents were seen photographed by local police uh, engaging in racist activities, having fake lynchings and making fun of uh, minorities. And also there was a large sexual uh, harassment scandal brewing in ATF. Um, ATF was a troubled agency at the time. And, uh, and also, and this is something we couldn't include in the movie because of time, but I have interviewed people in, who were involved in the neo-Nazi circles at that time. And uh, they were being approached by ATF informants, wanting them to blow up a federal building with ANFO in a Ryder truck. This is before the Oklahoma City bombing. This is exactly what played out in Oklahoma City, according to the official story. So you see the script being shopped around to different neo-Nazi groups around the country, none of whom were actually biting because they had already been subjected to a n large number of sting operations in the past. And, and frankly, all the dumb ones were already in jail. The ones who were still around in 1995, they were survivors. They weren't, they weren't biting on stuff like this. And uh, they actually couldn't pin it on anyone. They was, it was supposed to be a vast right-wing conspiracy, but they actually could not pin it on anyone. So they just blamed it on the spirit of right-wing paranoia. And according to the government, the conspiracy consisted of Tim McVeigh, Terry Nichols, and uh, one other man in the universe, Michael Fortier, another Army buddy, who, uh, play, who actually turned state's evidence and disappeared in the Witness Protection Program. Interesting, uh, again, similarities, uh, this time going dialing it back to the, the, uh, the bombing uh, in 1993 of the World Trade Center, in which, again, we have a truck bomb detonated below the North Tower. And uh, later it came out that, um, was it Ramzi Youssef who claimed that he was part of some sort of FBI sting operation and that he was supposed to be given... Uh, you know, uh, a phony bomb, and then somehow he ended up having the real... I mean, it's, it's eerie, the similarities. Well, the, the 1993 bombing of the World Trade uh, at the Twin Towers um, was a Ryder truck packed with an ammonium bomb. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It also was being run by an FBI informant, Ahmad Salam. In fact, when the FBI started providing him with real explosives, he got real nervous. He thought that he was going to be uh, framed for this thing. So he started recording his conversations with, the, with his FBI handler, and, uh, you know, the FBI was telling him to go ahead with the bombing, give them real explosions and explosives. This was covered by CBS News and the New York Times, but uh, no one was held accountable for this. And two years later, we see a similar op operation actually uh, with a lot more serious consequences. Now, a uh, Pat Con, uh, and I, I've heard that uh, the present uh, U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder uh, has been named as someone who has participated in in, in Pat Con, and they were they were essentially the idea was that they were they were running um, bombs and and um, armaments to these you know far right extremist groups. So, are you suggesting that perhaps some rogue element within this Pat Con operation seized upon this opportunity? Is that a possibility? I do think that is a strong possibility. Um, the day our documentary released, and for those of you who are interested in, in checking it out, you can go to anoblelie.com. You can watch the trailer or you can get it on Amazon, whatever. In fact, we just uh, returned from Muskogee, Oklahoma, where we picked up uh, Best uh, Documentary Feature. Um, we just picked that up today, so that's why we're a little late today. Congratulations. But, thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. But uh, PatCon, the day our movie released on December 9th, uh, late last year, Newsweek, uh, put out an article through its uh, internet organ, uh, the Daily Beast, 
talking about uh, an FBI informant named Matthews. And it was a, it was a, it was a coverage of his uh, crusade in the mid-90s when he was infiltrating neo-Nazi and far-right groups in the United States. He had worked 10 years for the FBI. Um, this story was supposed to include extensive mention of PacCon. In fact, the original article did. I've talked to the reporter who wrote it. He's actually seen the movie. He likes it. He also also told us he could not, would not be allowed to cover it. But um, he, that original article included mentions of PacCon, but when it was, re- in fact, it was read that Friday to Jesse Trentadu, whom we interview in the movie. And that Monday when it was released, all mentions of PacCon had been cut from the article. They do not want PacCon receiving any coverage. Now, Eric Holder, who is now Attorney General of the United States, um, he had been vol- involved in the cover-up after Oklahoma City. He had been involved in the cover-up of the murder, the torture murder of Kenny Trentadu in federal prison, who had been transferred from uh, California, picked up on a simple parole violation, fl- flown to Oklahoma City to the Federal Transfer Center, and then he was found dead a couple days later with wounds all over his body. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Kenny Trentadu. T- explain who he was. Kenny Trentadu was not involved with the bombing at all. It was a case mistaken identity, but... He had a bank robbery conviction in the past. He had been picked up on a simple uh, parole violation. And it wasn't even a violation. It was just a misunderstanding. And it was kind of confusing why they flew him to Oklahoma City from California. And so they just, they just, the family just chalked it up to, to government incompetence. They agreed and they were going to get him a lawyer. It was no big deal. They didn't think he was going to go to jail. And then he winds up dead. And they say it was a suicide. But there were bruises all over his body on the soles of his feet, which the Oklahoma State Medical Examiner told the family was the result of torture. There were um, fingerprint uh, marks on his biceps, and Kenny's knuckles were black and blue because he fought to death. But he was dead. His head was caved in, and he had been strangled, and his throat had been slashed. And in fact, the Trentadu family won a wrongful death lawsuit against the government because of Kenny's death. His brother was but, an attorney, correct? Yes, Jesse Trentadu was an attorney out of Salt Lake City. We just talked to him a couple of weeks ago. We had a screening in Salt Lake, and he had just uh, finished with a hearing in federal court. Uh, Jesse Trentadu is currently pursuing the videotapes that would have recorded exactly what happened in front of the Murrah building. Everyone who saw McVeigh pull up with that truck saw him with another person. The government denies this, but everyone, everyone. In fact, the one witness who was produced in Denver for the trial admitted under cross-examination that, yes, McVeigh was with another person in that truck. Um, so, in fact, the, the Secret Service's timeline upon viewing the videotapes says that three minutes and six seconds after the suspects plural, left the truck is when it detonated. So Jesse Trentadu is pursuing those tapes because they, he knows his brother was killed because they thought he was John Doe number two. He wasn't. It was a case of mistaken identity. They thought he was Richard Lee Guthrie, a known accomplice of Tim McVeigh, who had a bank robbery conviction, who had a similar build to Kenny Trentadu, had a very similar tattoo, and had a similar background. They thought he was Richard Lee Guthrie, who himself, Guthrie, wound up dead in a prison cell just a couple months later, hanging after he promised a reporter that he was going to blow the lid open in Oklahoma City. A lot of people died uh, because of Oklahoma City after the fact to perpetuate the cover-up. Eric Holder was in charge of the cover-up of the murder of Kenny Trentadu. He is now Attorney General of the United States. So the idea of, uh, they thought that, again, in this case of mistaken identity, uh, Kenny Trentadu was uh, one of the accomplices. And so this was what, like a wet team, basically pulling a Jack Ruby on Oswald, get rid of all those people involved? Um, it was FBI, according to Jesse. We have interviewed, well, he has interviewed people who were on that cell block, um, 
actually one of whom, another one of them, whom ended up dead later, ended up uh, hanging in his cell, Alden Gillis Baker, after he started talking to uh, Jesse. Um, it was an FBI interrogation team. Uh, they went in to go question Kenny. Kenny didn't have any idea what they were talking about. The interrogation got rough. Kenny started defending himself, and they assaulted him, they tortured him, and they strangled him with a zip tie around his neck. They still didn't know who they had killed. They thought it was Richard Lee Guthrie. Richard Lee Guthrie is known as a master of disguise and someone who could switch identities. They thought it was Richard Lee Guthrie. They didn't know it was Kenny. In fact, they were very surprised that uh, the family was fighting for the truth on this because Richard didn't have a family to fight for this. And they were really surprised, and they regret killing Kenny Trenton to this day because of that. So much more information has come out, including the fact that government informants were surrounding McVeigh in the days before the bombing, monitoring his activities, and uh, were with him and around him up until the day of the bombing. Holland van den Neuenhoff is uh, my guest, along with Chris Emery, uh, narrator and co-writer of A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, we should say award-winning uh, documentary. And um, we'll uh, grab a call here and welcome David from Smithsville. Welcome, David. How's it going? Well, thank you. Your question, comment. Yes, I actually own the movie, and it's a fantastic movie. Thank you. Um, I've thank been you, looking David. for um, information on Oklahoma City for a long time. And until your movie came out, I, I was really left, you know, in the dark mostly. And I just wondered, why do you guys think that 9-11 had so much legs underneath it and woke up so many people, and yet Oklahoma City has stayed um, a, a secret for so long? That's a very good question. Uh, Oklahoma City happened in 1995. That was in the infancy of the Internet where the dissemination of information was not nearly uh, as rapid as it is today. In fact, if they tried something as sloppy as Oklahoma City today, I think it would blow up in their face because a lot of things went wrong with that operation. Um, so that was, that's the main reason. Also, it was overshadowed by 9-11. The, the manipulation of the media was much more effective back then because people did not have access, first-hand access to the information. We see with ABC's 2020, they actually did a 15-minute segment on Oklahoma City talking about the prior knowledge of certain government officials and uh, other aspects of the bombing. This, uh, this segment proved so popular they produced an hour-long show and uh, the producer, Roger Charles, uh, he was shot, produced, and he sat down at home to watch it on TV, and they played a rerun. And uh, he, w he called his bosses at ABC. He's like, hey, what's going on? And they said, well, we received uh, some calls from the Justice Department, and we agreed to drop the show. So you see the manipulation of the media at play. It was much more effective in 1995 because people didn't have access to the information. With 9-11, things were coming out that day, within weeks Within weeks, the 9-11 Truth Movement was born after 9-11 because of the dissemination of information made possible by the information revolution. And I believe that by exposing these false flag terror tools, and we are actually, you know, robbing it of its power. Because when people discover it and figure it out, it loses its power. Thanks for the call, uh, David Smithsville. Uh, just uh, let me go back to uh, Brigadier General Benton Parton. Did he not interview Timothy McVeigh in prison? Uh, no, 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 no. no. That, uh, General Benton K. Parton was actually involved in the analysis of the bomb damage at Oklahoma City. We interviewed him for the movie. He's in the movie. He was the former chief of weapons development. He spent right. his career blowing things up and doing bomb damage analysis, and he concluded that there were four interior explosives. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I thought I had um, once read a quote attributed to, to Parton, Benton Parton. I had him on a, a show many years ago. 
uh, talking about TWA 800. At that time, he mm. took out, a, I believe it was like a full-page ad in the New York Times regarding right. TWA 800. But with regards to Oklahoma City, I thought I had read where he was maintaining that, that, uh, that McVeigh had said to him that he thought he was part of a sting operation. But I guess that, that, that interview never took place. I'm not to my knowledge, Chris. That's, uh, that, I believe that was with uh, Stephen Jones, and that may have leaked out through some articles after McVeigh had passed on. But you're right. Uh, Parton did never, never had the opportunity, uh, nor I don't think the desire to actually interview uh, McVeigh. Let's um, uh, talk about the, um, the commission or the committee, the, the, the Oklahoma Bombing Investigating Committee. And uh, Go ahead. Represent, State Representative Charles Key. What 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 uh, was Charles Key saying about uh, Oklahoma City? Well, he was he was actually um, at first really not interested in investigating the case, but I found out that his former secretary that worked with him at the state capitol, he was serving as a state representative at the time of the bombing, had resigned from the state capitol and taken a job with the federal government and was actually working in the Murrah building and was killed that morning. This is about a year after she'd left the state capitol. And uh, I met her parents um, just by chance going to church with Charles. This is way back when I first moved here in 03. Her parents approached Charles about two weeks after the bombing, after a church service, and said, look, we're getting a storyline from the Oklahoma City Police Department and the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Department that agree, but it completely flies in the face of the narrative we're getting from the FBI. Through your power, your limited uh, powers at the state capitol, is there any way that you could start an investigation? Well, Charles had known this family for years, ever since Sandra Day, his former secretary, was a youngster. And uh, it was a long, hard decision. He had to sit down with his wife. He had to consider the consequences. The political ramifications were just astronomical. Uh, he was an up-and-coming uh, representative, served on various committees at the state capitol, had a very successful insurance business, and he took, chose to take the high road and actually start an investigation. And he told me from that day forward... For the next two and a half years, the local press, the radio and the, and the newspaper uh, were on him like, uh, you know, white on rice. His, his insurance clientele, one by one, just started leaving. Uh, they, they just didn't renew their uh, policies with him. It was insane. He lost his insurance business. And uh, if it wasn't for the, um, oh, the, the kindness and the uh, generosity of, of the folks that actually donated uh, close to $650,000 over the course of six years to support the committee, he would have been out of uh, gainful employment. So he gave up a lot. But uh, because Charles Key put his name and reputation on the line, um, a lot of people came forward with information knowing that it wasn't going to be abused or ignored. It, they weren't just going to some hack journalist who was trying to crank out a story to make a name for himself. They knew Charles Key was seeking the truth. They knew he was an honorable man. And because of him and the efforts of the Bombing Investigation Committee, which included uh, BZ Lawton, who was a survivor, uh, Colonel Dale Phillips, I mean, Colonel George Wallace and Dale Phillips, um, because of their stature in the community and their good reputations, people were able to go, felt comfortable going to them with their information. Because it's very hard for normal people to possess extraordinary information that flies in the face of the official story and to know what to do about it. But because of their efforts and their willingness to suffer the consequences for doing the right thing, we know so much more about the bombing than, than we ever would have. How's the film uh, being... Um perceived by uh, I mean are you getting reviews is it being covered in the national uh, in the national press or is it being ignored 
not nationally and uh, on a very minuscule uh, extent on the local level. They, they don't want to address the issues we bring up in a noble lie because they, you can't defend the official story. There's not even one official story to defend. Uh, what, the, what was presented at court is different from what the FBI said, which is different from what, from what the media says, which is different from what the government says. There's just several different cover stories to try to cover these loose ends. I would welcome a qualified debate uh, with someone who's willing to defend the official story, but I, I'm pretty sure that no one is foolish enough to take up that task. That's an impossible task. There's nothing to defend. It's a wet paper bag. We proved this with firsthand eyewitness accounts, seismographs, scientific evidence, analysis, um, I mean, half our, you know, most of our eyewitnesses are government employees. Uh, this was a federal building, after all. We interview police officers, people who are on the scene, first responders, and it, the the totality of this body of evidence is overwhelming and a testament to the ability of the government to manipulate reality, at least in our eyes, to suit its own ends. You know, it, it, one has to be rather cynical and perhaps justifiably so to contemplate. The idea that a, a, a government, our elected representatives, would sacrifice human lives uh, for some, I don't know, political for political expediency, I guess. In this case, you know, passing uh, some form of a Patriot Act under Clinton. How do you feel about that, that, that idea that governments will target some, you know, maybe rogue element inside, but will target c- civilians, will target their own people uh, for political expediency? Well, we see it every day. I mean, the covert arm of this government has been perpetuating instability and persecution overseas for decades with applause, with good results. There is nothing to stop them from bringing it home. We see this government killing civilians and innocent people every day. We see Eric Holder, Attorney General of the United States, who was involved with the Oklahoma City bombing cover-up. He initiated Operation Fast and Furious here in the U.S., which broke, which is not making nearly enough headlines as it should be because it's been responsible for the death of 2,000 Mexican citizens. It actually didn't even hit the papers until it killed three U.S. cops. And those emails have come out from the U.S. prosecutor's office in Phoenix where they're talking about using Fast and Furious, the fact that they were smuggling guns down to the drug cartels in Mexico to inflame the drug war. They talk about using gun violence to justify more restrictions on gun purchases. Now, gun violence doesn't mean someone waving a gun around. It means people being shot and killed. And it's, that death toll is now 2,000 people um, for a political end. So why is it so hard to believe that 17 years ago a similar political agenda was carried out that killed a mere 168? Was it, in fact, some rogue element uh, some criminal element inside uh, the government? Was it a case of uh, let it happen or make it happen? Um, it's a combination of, of LIHOP and MIHOP, I suppose. The execution, like I said, was a sting operation. Um, they did not expect, and the investigation we've carried out talking to people on the scene, the original plan was for that building to blow up in the middle of the night and kill no one. It was supposed to be, be a big PR stunt. And after that explosion, they could do they could do a winch hunt of their political enemies. But that's not what happened. It blew up in the middle of the day because a deeper agenda took effect. It not only passed 
you know, the Anti-Terrorist Act. It inaugurated the new age of terror we live in today. In America, before 1995, people did not worry about terrorism. It wasn't even on the uh, wasn't on well, on the radar. It wasn't a concern, which is a far cry from the world we live in today, where terrorism is in the headlines every day, is something we're supposed to be afraid of every day. Oklahoma City brought us into the new age of terror, and I believe that was the deeper agenda at work. Are there other parallels to be drawn between Oklahoma City and 9-11? Or, I, I know, you, you know, this is the subject of your film, but after making this film, after uncovering the suppressed evidence and so forth, did it change any of your views about 9-11, for instance? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one thing that we could not cover, uh, Richard, was the fact that uh, five of the alleged perps that uh, took place that uh, participated in 9-11 were actually in Oklahoma City within four days before 9-11 occurred. The audacity, um, and it's documented that they were here. It's not hearsay or conjecture. Just a very odd overlap and odd parallel in that respect. But we found out that uh, the fact that they were here completely contradicts and flies in the face of the official narrative and the timeline of Pentagon. So, um, in you know, it's hard to put our finger on it, uh, how, you, how you would describe it, but it completely torpedoed the official story, and they had to come back here to Oklahoma City to do that on, on the Pentagon, just on who was involved in the timeline and where it all started, and the, the genesis of 9-11 was, um, was compromised here in Oklahoma City. We believe that uh, the support cell that was activated to support the Oklahoma City bombing was also activated uh, prior to 9-11 to support that attack. Many of the hijackers were t uh, doing flight training here in Oklahoma. They were traveling through here. They were having meetings here. In fact, um, Muhammad Atta, the lead hijacker, had a meeting with three other hijackers, including the supposed 20th hijacker, Zacharias Massawi, at a motel in Oklahoma City that was the same motel used by Timothy McVeigh six years prior, right before the Oklahoma City bombing. In fact, when this meeting took place in August of 2001, right before 9-11, it's pretty strange because here at OU, University of Oklahoma, which is just down the street from Oklahoma City, uh, the, the campus had invited a CIA officer named David Edger as a CIA officer in residence. Uh, prior to his appointment to OU, uh, David Edger had been uh, in charge of the surveillance team that monitored Muhammad Atta and the hijackers in Hamburg, Germany. Prior to this, David Edger had been head of covert operations for the CIA, the head jackal. It doesn't get any deeper or darker than this guy. Then he takes an apparent demotion to be in charge of the surveillance team watching Muhammad Atta while he's in Hamburg talking about launching attacks in the United States while he's making phone calls into the United States with Zacharias Massawi, the 20th hijacker, and David Edger is then at OU appointed the month before and here in Oklahoma the same time that Muhammad Atta has his meeting with a couple of the hijackers and Zacharias Massawi here in the United States. So I believe David Edger was monitoring the hijackers in Germany and he followed them into uh, Oklahoma and monitored, monitored or controlled them here. Holland van den Neuenhoff and Chris Emery from Free Mind Films, the uh, award-winning documentary A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. We'll take a time out. We'll uh, get some more calls. Uh, get on board with the conversation. Questions and comments, 416-360-0740 in Toronto. And toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. Oklahoma City bomb tapes appear to be edited. The secret security tapes showing the chaos immediately after the 1995 bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Buildings are blank. 
in the few minutes before the blast on all the cameras around the building. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Co-writer Holland Van de Nieuwenhoff and narrator Chris Emery join me from Free Mind Films. The documentary is A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. And uh, the website, if you'd like to find out more, is uh, well, they can go to Free Minds. Uh, freemindfilms.com and the other website is at anoblelie.com or noblelie.com gentlemen uh, anoblelie.com anoblelie.com all right um, is it another one of those stories that circulated uh, in the um, the weeks and the months afterwards and, and you know another similarity 9-11 you had all of this this huge crime scene horrible huge crime scene and a lot of the uh, the debris is hauled off and buried unceremoniously uh, there were reports that there were sniff dogs that were used uh, to recover bodies and that those sniff dogs, some of them, died of radiation poisoning. Apocryphal or, uh, or is there any validity to that story? Um, I believe it's apocryphal. We interview in the movie Don Browning, Oklahoma City police officer, first responder, and he had his uh, canine dog with him. And uh, he, there are no reports that I am aware of that are true of dogs dying from radiation poisoning. There has been long a theory bandied about that there was a mini nuke uh, used in Oklahoma City that was responsible for the damage. And I, I per, that perhaps that's where this story is coming from. But I know of no dogs who died from radiation poisoning. And the mini nuke theory uh, is not necessary. There, the, the damage in Oklahoma City was very mundane. It didn't take anything exotic. Um, General Pardon demonstrated that it would just take a very small amount of explosives on those four supporting columns to do that damage. In fact, when they brought the entire building down a month later, it took less than 200 pounds of C4. I have interviewed a first responder, deposed him, actually. Chris was there. And he was talking about the fact that the ATF, the day of the bombing, was openly talking about the fact that they had swabbed the interior columns and that they had tested positive for C4. Now, obviously, I do think that exotic technology was at work in 9-11, but I see no reason why, exa- why exotic technology was used mm-hmm. in Oklahoma City. We found out from Don also that some of the dogs were uh, suffering from uh, exposure to Agent Orange, and it was originally brought on the crime scene to help stave off the decomposition and the, unfortunately, the uh, resulting stench from that. And then uh, actions were taken to make sure that that was no longer used, and some of the dogs did uh, get violently ill from that, but um, as far as the radiation, I think that was that was never uh, proven. Yeah, they actually did use a derivative of Agent Orange. They sprayed it on the building mm-hmm. uh, to cut down the stench. A lot of first responders were really upset about that. Uh, of course, the the wreckage from uh, the World Trade Center complex taken off to Fresh Kills. What about what was the sort of the Fresh Kills equivalent in Oklahoma for the Murrah Building? Where Jeez. was it? There's four different landfills, some of them, what, as much as many as 10 miles outside of town. They were buried under armed guard, and the same company, uh, Control Demolition, Inc., was involved in demolishing the uh, remnants of the Murrah building a month after. Demolition, Inc. was also used in the demolition activities uh, following uh, 9-11. The same company was used. And, but but in, in, in the case of the Murrah building, it, it wasn't demolished for a month. 
Yes. Yes. And uh, actually, it was demolished before any independent analysis could take place. Ah, okay, the, that was my question. There was, yeah, the, was there independent analysis? No, none at all. None at all. The defense attorney, they, they were allowed one trip to the Murrah building before it was demolished, and even then they weren't allowed to see the crater at all. And uh, there was one, uh, the FEMA uh, actually contracted the American Society of Civil Engineers to do a analysis of the damage at the building, but they weren't allowed within 200 feet of the building. The, the excuse was that it was too dangerous that they couldn't be in there, but that was, that was ridiculous. There were people, rescue workers and responders in that building every day, dozens of them, because, I mean, when they actually demolished it, there were still three bodies left in the building. They were in such a rush to demolish it that they actually left three bodies in there. And they told the, uh, the ASCE team that they couldn't come within 200 feet, and so they couldn't even do an on-site analysis. But even then, they observed that some of the damage to the columns indicated contact explosives. One interesting thing on that, uh, Richard, was the ASCE team came in from Washington and some from Dallas, that was on May 9 of 1995. On May 5th, in fact, we have the front page photo, uh, aerial photo of over 400 uh, responders and law enforcement officers at a memorial service less than 10 feet from the base of, of the uh, Murrah building. And then all of a sudden, uh, four days later, it's too dangerous for the ASCE team to get any closer than, uh, than 200 feet. So it was completely ludicrous. What are the victims' families saying about this film? They love it. Um, that's the one thing we, we really wanted to achieve with this is to finally tell their story. I mean, our director of photography, he's a pro. He, he works with all the major outfits that come through town, Oprah, um, History Channel, Nat Geo, all of them. And he had interviewed some of our subjects three or four times already for these channels. And they told the same story every time. But everything they had said that was contrary to the official story was cut, edited out when it was released through the mainstream media. So we have finally told their story. I mean, I just had dinner with Janie Coverdell the other day, whom we interviewed in the movie. She lost two grandchildren in the daycare center, and she's very pleased with the movie. The people who were involved, I mean, just uh, on the anniversary, we uh, actually donated 500 free copies, and we went down to the memorial, to the ceremony, and we passed out those copies to everyone taking part, and those included family members of lost ones, first responders. I talked to the daughter of uh, the only first responder who was killed, and the movie had actually been recommended to her by a friend. She was excited to receive it. And people are, I mean, the security at the memorial was asking for the movie. The head of security, people who worked there, the park rangers, they were asking about it. They had been told about the movie. They want to see it. So there has been an overwhelmingly positive response among the people who have seen it. What we do witness is a demonstrable case of uh, lack of coverage by the mainstream media. What's gonna, what is it going to take uh, to penetrate this firewall around the mainstream media that allows the evidence, that would allow the evidence that you bring mm. forward in this film to be made known to the, the, the general public. What's it going to take? Who cares? Um, the mainstream media, I, I'm really not concerned. They're, they're becoming a, di a dinosaur. People are not using them for their information anymore. So I'm really not too concerned with trying to break it open into the large-scale mainstream media because, for one thing, it's not going to happen. Two, it's largely irrelevant. Uh, the alternative media is taking over, and that's that's, that's a positive sign. We are actually seeking out firsthand knowledge for ourselves, verifying whether it's true or not, and deciding whether it's true or not based on our own criteria, criteria rather than allowing the institutions to dictate the story to us. We have a, a social media network um, marketing director uh, for the film, and it's, the numbers we've gotten from uh, Facebook and Twitter and so forth have just been astronomical. Uh, we're very proud to say that our film has sold in 14 different foreign countries, including very well 
in Canada. Oh yeah, Canada. And uh, I mean, the we we were very confident this movie was good. We had absolutely no idea, Richard, it was going to get the response it has, and we're very humbled. Uh, you know, it tends. Uh, well, I I don't know if we want to give out the exact number, but it was just uh, almost three times what we thought. And um, a majority of that is actually overseas. So people are very hungry for the truth on this case. And what, how would you characterize, what, what is the truth in this case? I mean, for someone who hasn't seen the movie, give me the elevator argument. The official story is false. It's not defensible. What we do know is that there were bombs inside the building that did the primary damage that were responsible for most of the casualties when those columns collapsed and the floors pancaked upon one another. Had that truck bomb exploded outside the building, had the truck bomb been the sole cause of destruction, certainly a few people would have been killed. The facade would have been damaged, the windows would have blown in, and a few people would have been killed. But we would not have seen the catastrophic collapse. What we do know is that the federal government took part in a cover-up to the extent that they killed several people, tortured and killed several people, including the first police officer to respond to the scene, Officer Terrence Yakey who was an exemplary police officer, honor graduate from the academy. He pulled up just a couple minutes after the bombing, and he noted things that were wrong with the official story. He heard the multiple explosions along with dozens of other witnesses. Um, he saw that there were agents outside the building watching what was going on that should not have been there. He started collecting information, talking to other police officers. A year after the bombing, his body's found on federal property with a dozen wounds packed with mud and grass as if he'd been dragged, torture marks, he had handcuff marks on his wrist, a noose mark around his neck, and the cause of expiration was a bullet hole to the upper right portion of his skull that exited lower left jaw with no powder burns. This was ruled a suicide. So you can see the extent they're willing to go to cover up the truth. I have been approached by police officers myself out of the blue talking to me about Terry Yakey. They knew he had been killed because of, who he, because of what he knew and what he was trying to expose. And the message was passed on to the other first responders and the other people who knew to keep your mouth shut. Holland van den Neuenhoff uh, stays with us. Uh, Chris Emery stays with us from Free Mind Films. A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. We'll get to some more calls. 416-360-0740, Back with more. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Holland van den Neuenhoff and Chris Emery from Free Mind Films, the award-winning documentary A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995, as we commemorate the 17th anniversary this month, uh, the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City, uh, the Alfred uh, Murrah building claiming 168 lives and uh, 19 of them uh, children, many of them small children. Um, here's an interesting quote. A 14-year veteran of the Drug Enforcement Agency, Basil Abbott, uh, is quoted as saying, governments, in order to perpetuate themselves, will sacrifice 400 or 500 people without a second thought. Is that what happened at Oklahoma City? Well... You'll have to watch uh, the movie, I guess, and decide for yourselves. Uh, another one of these uh, rumors that were that was circulating in the days, weeks, and months after the bombing was that there were certain documents, sensitive documents, in the Alfred P. Murrah building 
uh, pertaining to a drug running operation uh, uh, used to fund, you know, the Iran Contra or the uh, the um, various, you know, black ops and so forth. That was that was drugs being flown into Mena, Arkansas, which of course was was where Clinton was the governor at the time. Uh, any truth to that? That there were documents in the Alfred P. Murrah building that would have been embarrassing to the Clinton White House. Well, in a Noble Eye, we interview uh, police officer Craig Roberts. He had been retained by the FBI. Uh, actually, um, they asked him to assist in the investigation because he had such a good reputation. And he worked for the FBI for a period of time until he realized that the FBI was lying to him, and he, and he quit working for the FBI, he, and, but he still continued the investigation. But while the time he was working for the FBI, he received a call, a series of calls from federal agents in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they told him that the uh, Whitewater investigation records th that also pertain to the MENA Arkansas drug smuggling ring that was being used in Iran-Contra, that those records, when the Clintons uh, went from Little Rock, when they went to D.C. to assume the presidency, that those records had been moved to the Murrah building. And we know that they were very concerned with the paperwork in the Murrah building. Well, Don Browning, the police officer, uh, relates how he was told by a female FBI agent that there were records so important to the uh, government that until they were recovered, no more rescue would be performed. They were actually pulling out documents, halting rescue while people were bleeding inside, halting rescue, and they pulled up rider trucks and were loading documents up. There were FBI agents all over downtown Oklahoma City that day picking up pieces of paper and collecting them. In fact, some rescue workers uh, relate that there were FBI agents at the building stepping over wounded and bleeding people crying for help, stepping over them to pick up pieces of paper. So we do know they were very concerned about the paperwork in the Murrah building. We know that they, that federal agents were telling police officers that the records from Mina and Whitewater were moved to the Murrah building. Sam is in Philadelphia. Sam, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, uh, have you seen uh, John W. Dean's book, Worse Than Watergate, 2004? No. No, I haven't, sir. Well, he, he, and I only read the first chapter, but it, it, it talks about uh, there was this horrible uh, whitewash campaign by Bush in Texas against McCain, accusing his wife of being a drug addict and uh, accusing uh, McCain's adopted. How does that pertain to Oklahoma City, uh, Sam? Is there a connection? Uh, well, you, you were talking about uh, 1993 and 9-11. Uh, yes. I'm just, I'm just saying, uh, well, I, I was going to go back to uh, Pearl Harbor, too, but uh, I don't know if you ever looked at any of the stuff from Pearl Harbor. Oh, we've discussed it at length on the show. I mean, the the guy who wrote the uh, current book, or uh, I, I mean, he has a movie coming out? Uh, no, I haven't, uh, sir. Uh, I, I, I I'm not familiar with that, Sam. Sam, I, I appreciate the call nonetheless. I, 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 uh, I want to move on because I have a lot of people waiting. Let's say hello to uh, our good uh, friend Nelson Thal, media scientist, joins us on the show frequently. Nelson, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great being uh, uh, listening in. Of course, um, Richard uh, Skolnick uh, on Cloak and Dagger reported uh, interviews with Benton Parton and also the connection between the Iraqis that Bush brought back from 91 war uh, and the involvement of them with Timothy McVeigh, and that Timothy McVeigh is, is still alive. That, um, of course, the Chandra Levy was a 
worked for the Federal Bureau of Prisons and saw that he was alive after he was supposedly executed. So I'm sure there's more subterfuge here, and uh, I'm sure McVeigh went into a witness protection program listening to the show. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Uh, yeah. Holland and uh, Chris, would you want to, uh, do you care to speculate on that possibility, that uh, McVeigh, if he was some sort of an asset, that he would have been spared the lethal injection? Well, um, I have interviewed people who were actually witness to the execution. They were families. Uh, they were victims' family members. They were allowed to view the execution via closed-circuit television. Some of them, including a reporter, also noted that his chest was still moving when he was wheeled out of that room. Uh, Janie Coverdell has serious questions of whether he was actually executed. She said that you didn't, you didn't get to see anything. They just had him covered in a sheet, and then they rolled him out. You don't know what happened. The fact is they did not do an autopsy after his death, which is unprecedented. They always do an autopsy on executed federal prisoner. It's always happened, except in the case of Timothy McVeigh. So he very well may be alive, but frankly, I don't even want to know. All right, Nelson, thank you for the call. And finally, Craig is in Alliston. Craig, we've just got about a minute, so if I can get you to get right to your point. Yeah, I was got your movie, excellent movie. I got it off Alex. Thank you. Thank and you uh, very in much, there, sir. there's a sheriff uh, from Ontario, a guy's talking about, in a car that showed up the day of the bombing and was there at the bombing. Our sheriff's cars up here are heavily equipped with cameras and videotape and microphones. Do you remember this reporter or someone mentioning it? It's in the middle of your movie. Someone's talking about a sheriff's car from Ontario. I need to know, is that Ontario, Canada? That's my question. Um, actually, I don't. I don't recall any reference. Well, I wrote the movie, so I know there's not any reference to a sheriff's car from Ontario. But if you're referring to the videotape in, in the car that arrested McVeigh, that's never seen the light of day. Holland and uh, Chris, again, uh, congratulations on uh, the award-winning documentary, A Noble Lie, Oklahoma City, 1995. And if people want to see it um, or, or purchase it, how do they do that? Uh, anoblelie.com. You can watch the trailer there and get it on Amazon, go to InfoWars, whatever. But yeah, uh, anoblelie.com, and you can check it out. Thank you for your time, gentlemen. I appreciate the invite, It's Richard. been a great it's show, a man. Night, Thanks. Sir. Chris Emery and Holland van den Neuenhoff, Free Mind Films. All right, uh, back next week with a brand new show, and I hope you'll be along for that. Promises to be a wild ride, I can guarantee that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.